Welcome back. I want to take a quick second to tell you about our sponsor of today's episode of North American Deer Talk, CNE Wildlife Products. CNE Wildlife is a trusted leader in biotechnology for the cervid industry. They offer microencapsulated bacteria products that are research supported through Texas Tech University. With more than 30 years of experience and commitment to all natural probiotics, this product line continues to be a mainstay in herd management programs across North America. And the reason is simple. They are passionate about the cervid industry. They have products for elk, whitetail, muleys, red deer, and more. With products ranging from Fawn Paste and Electromax to Guardian Plus, Whitetail Energy Pack, Jumpstart, or their ever-popular Top Score Extreme, they just flat out work. We've been a CNE Wildlife product user for more than 15 years. To learn more about CNE Wildlife, check out episode 54 of North American Deer Talk, a probiotics masterclass with CNE owner Sadie Horrocks, and give her a call today to start using the products we do here. Hey, it's the Deer Wizard, host of North American Deer Talk. I want to tell you about a great new advertising and research platform that we've developed for you, CWDbreeding.com. You know, as the deer industry continues to mature and develop around chronic wasting disease and its known genetic heritability, resources like CWDbreeding.com become essential tools for deer managers across the country making decisions about their herds. I really wanted a platform that excelled at hosting GBV and codon markers in a filterable and searchable manner, but I also wanted to have high quality pictures, videos, ages, scores, NADAR numbers, and a whole host of other information to go along with that. This database puts everything in one easy to find location and allows you to access the industry's greatest genetic resources. I look forward to seeing all the great bucks that people have to offer in one easy to find location, cwdbreeding.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of North American Deer Talk. This is, I think this is episode 85. Don't quote me on it. Um, it could be 86. I, I, I can't keep my shows straight. We have Dayton Schaefer in the studio today. Dayton, how are you? Good, Josh. How are you? I'm doing really well. I uh, I appreciate you joining me today. Um, I uh, I was I was it was a week or two ago, and I, of course, you know, uh, for for us dear people, uh, Facebook is a is a constant forum for us to interact with each other and and oh, we yeah, kind of rub shoulders. I I watched. Uh, I I was like reading your post, and then I kind of thought back to the first time that we got a chance to meet each other. I think it was at a a TDA and. I uh, I remembered our conversation and it it went right down the way that most conversations do. It was like dear dear dear, and then it went right into the health aspect of things. So I I wanna I wanna relive some of that with you um, in a little bit. But first, I just I wanna get a little bit of your kind of background story, um, maybe some some uh, you know some school, some family stuff like that. Um, why don't you, why don't you uh, why don't you tell the folks about some of that? Yeah, so I uh, I went to Texas A&M University, class of 2014, and when I decided to go to A&M, I was vet school all the way. That's what I was going to do. I was dedicated. I was raised um, by two physicians. Medicine was like in my mind 
from day one, but never wanted to do humans, always wanted to work with animals. Uh, and as I got farther along in my career in being a career student, years and years and years of going to a and I, you know, changed paths from vet school to go into livestock management. Uh, in Texas, the cattle industry is really competitive. Um, and if your daddy didn't raise cows, you're kind of stuck not getting an internship. So on a whim, one of my friends said, why don't you try a wildlife internship? And that was the summer of 2013. And I went and worked in Gatesville and bottle raised uh, some deer for Jim and Judy Taylor. They're the owners of Whitetail Deer Texas. Great people. I have said every year since I would not be in the deer industry if it wasn't for them. And I fell in love with it. And so now I'm on my 10th summer doing deer and managing a huge herd of roughly like 450 animals. And, and yeah, absolutely. Every day. Love it. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, it's always, I always find it interesting to see, uh, the transition from, you know, school or interns or that (laughs) kind of, you know, I'm always like, how'd you get into doing deer? Right. Cause it's, uh, you know, we all have this, this passion towards, you know, whitetails or mule deer or whatever that may be the deer, deer species. And, um, I always find that that fascinating. So you had a, I, I think you had a couple stints at a, a few farms and that led you to where you're at today. And where is that? So I manage Paragon Whitetails. It's in Trinity, Texas, uh, about an hour and a half North of Houston. And we, um, he's had, this is our third fawn crop. Um, I guess fourth fawn crop started in 2020 with some decent production pedigree does and now here we are we're we're spawning out our second year of embryo transfer fawns and uh, I've got you know 160 mamas fawning I have technically two facilities across about 100 acres worth of deer pens and uh, we we dialed it up to 11 from pedigrees and herd health and everything and keeps me pretty busy for sure but I I love it so uh, let's just well, let's just dig right into the the breeding program end of things. Um, so you have you have you mentioned obviously AI and and embryos. Um, what's that look like? How do you how do you kind of break that down as far as like animals? What gets AI? Why you're AI and what you're flushing? Why you're flushing? Give us give us the rundown of that. Yeah, you know, in Texas, the market is really competitive um, and the highest of high pedigree does are somewhat sometimes in short supply. And the best way to, you know, trust your program and the direction that you're going and the bucks that you're breeding would be to flush the doe with that top dollar buck. And she's got that anchor bottom side and, and produce what everyone wants and have a big marketable breeder that you can have on your farm covering your does and have, you know, semen sales on every farm, offspring on every farm across the state and, you know, nationwide selling straws to, you know, even to you up there in Pennsylvania. So that's kind of the goal for us right now. And, and the quickest way to do it, and, and maybe even I would say the most efficient way is not only to AI, but to flush and, and have these high pedigree does giving you, instead of giving you twins, anywhere from four to 10, 15 embryos that you can then implant 
into recipient surrogate mothers and and see where it gets you. I mean, best case scenario, two years from now, this summer, I end up uh, with a, a full-blooded brother-sister pair and the brother's a huge buck. And now the sister is sought after and she's already breedable age, you know, and, and then it just gets you a, another step ahead of the rest. And hopefully year after year, you, you know, you can keep creating pairs and multiples in that way. Um. So I, I've, I have been mildly resistant to do <laughs> embryo work at scale on my farm um, from a, I'm going to call it a devaluation of the female, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I've, I've thought about it a bunch and, you know, we have, and and it's becoming more apparent in Texas now too. We have a uh, chronic wasting disease regulatory issue, and it's mm -hmm. a big one. So I, I I remember I flushed my first dose that I flushed um, to get my feet wet were in 2015, and then I just didn't do it again. It was more like, hey, I want to try this. We did it. We did it successfully. We ended up you know implanting, getting a fall. I think we got one fawn out of the mix, and like. I'll chalk that up to a learning experience and a, and a success. And last year I had the opportunity to, to kind of do a, a larger program for me anyway, and, and sell a bunch of embryos, um, which generated a, a good chunk of revenue for my little farm and, and was an overwhelming success for me. And it allowed me to expand my genetic reach, which was very minimal without the regulatory burden, because I wasn't moving the, the live animals. So I think we have a, when you look at it from that, that aspect, I, I feel like it's, it's okay. Right. Like, or, or I'm giving, maybe I'm giving myself a pass on that. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Rationalizing but, with yourself. Yeah. 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 Well, this is a constant, constant struggle um, on a daily <laughs> basis here. Um, when you, when you look at the embryos, you know, you gave us one scenario where you're taking the, the best quality does with the the anchor bombs, you're breeding them to what you feel are the best quality bucks. Um, and is the ultimate goal uh, simply to provide that breeder buck for your farm? Um, I mean, obviously the, the, the does have power too, and the sisters become sought after, but is there, is it, is it purely for your, the longevity of your program or is it, is there something else there? What am I, am I missing anything? I think for us, it, you know, it, it kind of is, like you said, expanding your genetic profile as rapidly, efficiently as you can without having to invest in a, the live animal and do it all yourself. You can bring in your embryos. We have, we have brought in embryos and implanted frozen embryos from partnership farms and things like that. And most of them are from the North. Um, and it is a great way to get those girls that have have proven themselves. A lot of it goes back to, you know, on the bottom side, sudden impact sister, a lot of that stuff. That's not, that's not a Texas pedigree whatsoever, but here we are raising, I mean, I have a yearling buck that is a frozen embryo out of masterpiece with sudden impact sister on the bottom side. And there, there's no way that I would have ever been able to raise that deer without the science of embryos. So I think for us, you know, kind of like you said, it, it would be um, to get the diversity that you're looking for in order to not only market to every client that comes to your door, you know, you have a little bit of everything, heavy Northern, heavy, 
heavy Texas genetics, big framey deer, big heavy mast deer. I've got those products for everyone. You know, at the end of the day, these animals are a commodity and they're making money for the owner and, and by proxy for me. And I want to be able to say yes to everybody that comes to the door and embryo program for us right now, after two years has done it and given us an opportunity to play at a higher level that much faster. You guys you sell embryos then as well, or you would? Or? You know, we haven't done a whole lot of selling of embryos. We have partnered on mamas that we are flushing with a guarantee of, okay, we're going to split the embryos down the middle um, and we'll, you know, we'll wean them and send them to your farm, whatever. It's, you know, it's tough in Texas. There's no, can't cross borders and stuff like that. But there are a lot of people, especially, you know, in the Southeast, Louisiana and Florida that have started coming to Texas and wanting to invest. And that's a great way for them to have ownership of stuff and for us to ma maintain ownership of things that we really believe in and, and, you know, are kind of the face of our program. Yeah. Um, the, so the embryo, like the, you mentioned like, uh, you know, anywhere getting anywhere from, you know, four to 10 or fifteen mm -hmm. or 20, um, as you, as you look at, and, and maybe you haven't had a ton of time to review because, you know, you're just bombarded with bonds right now. And, um, you know, we're, we're wrapping up May here and we're going to get into June real quick. And, um, when you, are you seeing any, uh, surface level, um, I guess improvements in certain genetic lines of does that just naturally give more embryos? Are you, are you playing into the into the idea that like you have this more targeted approach towards certain female lines that are giving you more embryos because they have value or is it like we're just we're kind of blanket flushing and seeing where the cards lay and then making those decisions from there how how far along are you in that that process so we flushed in the fall of 2021 um right after i had my son <laughs> i was five weeks postpartum flushing <laughs> um, and then we flushed in the fall of 2022 and I, I'm really strict, not only on picking my pedigreed girls, but they have to have the temperament. They have to have the, um, and if they didn't flush well in 2021 and we did them again in 2022 and they didn't do it, you're out. I don't, you know, you have a stellar pedigree, but I'm going to just, use your pedigree on a normal AI level and, and go from there. And it doesn't, I don't think it diminishes their worth to get out of the flush program. I do think there is something to be said about diminishing worth in the flush program and just diluting the market with the same pedigree over and over and over again. You do have to be very cognizant of that and, and um, pick your very best girls and try not to just overdo it. Because at the end of the day, your pedigree, you're looking for that depth or you're looking for that um, twist, that outcross or going, you know, it's an outcross deer now and we're going to put, go back to sort of maybe like a traditional line breeding on her, something that's going to make it stand out and going to be uh, profitable, you know, mm -hmm. a year and a half, two years down the road. So while the owner probably would have wanted to flush 
30 to 35 girls. I did 22 this year and I made them live in the same pens together for basically the entire year. They ate, we fed them the same way every day. We drove their pens the same way every day. I didn't, I didn't want construction around their pens. I didn't want a bunch of guests driving near their pens. I wanted everything to just be perfect so that when you do stress them out by manipulating their reproductive system to a thousandth degree almost, that level of stress doesn't impact their productivity. Now, were you um, were you doing the kind of multi uh, multi day hormone treatment? Yes, you did do that. Okay, so, so you... I did a little bit of both. That's... Mostly, I did the eight shot program that you're talking about. Okay. Um, I did do four girls got a one shot, and it's it is a gamble. No matter what you do. It's a huge gamble and there's so many factors involved. And at the end of the day, you can still do everything right. And the their systems can still be manipulated too, too much and, and then it be a swing and a miss. So the eight shot, I mean, that's, that's coming to the barn twice a day to be darted for five days straight. And in the middle of that, and before that, you get your cedar put in. And then in the middle of that, you get your cedar pulled. And then you get sedated to have your surgery. And then seven days later, you get sedated to see if all of that stress was worth it to get some babies out of you. And some girls just can't handle the stress. And some girls, they don't care. I mean, I'll, I'll hit a zero. I'll have a girl have zero viable embryos after all that work. And then I'll have another girl ha give you 15. And just, you know, it was just another day for her. Um, and, and I, like you asked me, you know, I've, I tracked that and did, were there babies on the end, on the backside of it? Did those embryos actually become fawns on the ground? Did those fawns make it to weaning and do those fawns make it through the winter and are healthy? I'm not having to sling darts every day or did they make it through the summer even a uh, nursing on mama or did I have to put it on the bottle? All those things I take into consideration pretty heavily. Because at the end of the day, I manage these deer every single day, you know, eight, 10, 12 hours a day, I'm looking at them, but they've got to be able to do something for themselves <laughs> because How I've got to trust them at another farm to be able to be productive. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm going to just keep jumping around. Um, so you have, obviously when you're doing embryos, you have um, just this great potentially this great diversity of genetics you you mentioned being able to have like full northerns where you are mm -hmm. um obviously you have some some texas deer or southern deer um where you are too uh curious your observations around reproductive timing obviously body size is different health just the general like what's your general take on looking at those animals side by side in the pen what do you see because like I have very little Southern influence at my place mm -hmm. and I'm just, I'm just a Northern guy. So like, I don't have a ton of exposure to it. Mm -hmm. um, this is like the first year that I have any sort of like decent Southern influence in my herd. Uh, just curious what you see. Yeah. So I, I would say I, you know, for a perfect example, I talked about that masterpiece goes back to sudden impacts sister on the bottom that yearling um his tag number is number seven so he was probably born like right around june 1st last year he looks 
body wise, like he's going on two to two and a half instead of one to one and a half. He is a, a head and a half above the rest. I can pick him out easy because he's so tall. He's so broad chested, straight Northern genetics. He's in a pen with a breeder buck who was born in 2019. So he's four this summer, is a son of Blackjack. And they could stand next to each other. And you would think that they were about a year apart, not three years apart. Blackjack, um, for example, I mean, straight Southern genetics, pretty much as, as far as like a top, you know, marketed breeder in the industry right now, he would be the most Texas genetics you're going to find. His stuff is slow maturing and overall like smaller bodied females are going to be smaller bodied. Those bucks are slower maturing and then they get to two and a half or three and, and they're just as big as my Northern genetics. It just takes that much longer, but it, it kind of depends. I mean, my Northern genetics through the winter time and it makes complete sense. They thrive. I don't have to worry about them. But I mean, if I have sub-zero temperatures, you know, whatever, and it's snowing and, and the wind is blowing, my blackjack babies, my Texas Southern genetics, they look miserable. And then they come out on the other end and I'm like, okay, you look like you need a boost. But then in the summer, those Northern genetics are laying in one little sliver of shade that I have here. I have a lot of trees, but, um, and they're just panting and they like, they can't handle it. They just look miserable. They're still growing huge antlers, but God, they hate the sun and they hate the heat. So that's my biggest thing. And, but then you can look at some papered deer that I have that are about half and half and they're killing it. They, they do fine in the winter, in the summer. Um, the only thing I really ever get super concerned about would be like EHD. Um, it's just, it's so prevalent here. I've got cows in the area and you know anybody will tell you about EHD you're bringing you're bringing those bugs with livestock they're gonna bite your wildlife too and so we have we do plenty of preventative measures you know spraying and misting fogging and misting pesticides to protect our deer but um, most of the deer that I have to doctor for EHD because the preventative measures weren't enough they're probably pretty northern in their pedigree uh do you think there's a place or are you um are you kind of pursuing the kind of perfect mix of north and south uh, do you think that exists um like i i know up here so i really like my northern deer because i'm in the north right yeah <laughs> so, like they do well i know what to expect um my my hunters they they want a specific animal um yeah it's it's not like our average four-year-old does are over 170 pounds they're they're big animals right that's huge yeah like and that's i i, I you know some people give me a hard time but like i just i put a, i have a scale in the barn it's a very important tool for me just to uh, continue to make sure that everything's in line. I like to track my, yes. my weights and stuff. And I do the same thing. It's I an easy metric, thing. right? Oh like, yeah. Oh, last, you know, three weeks ago, she came in at 150. Now she's 139. What's going on? Easy. Right. Yeah. Easy. Cause you can't always tell looking at a deer standing in a pen that they lost 10 pounds, especially in the winter, especially in the winter, especially with Northern genetics. Yeah. So yeah. no, I, I completely agree. I think that for us, you know, this, 
we said this earlier at the end of the day everybody is a stalker buck farm every mm. farm you know you're playing with hundreds of thousands if not millions of dollars worth of animals but at the end of the day you have to have an outlet for that and the hunter hunting industry market in texas is way more mixed um and you have a lot of people that they're they want to spend this little chunk of change hunting what they think is a trophy animal and and that's it and then you have other guys that they're hunting every single year and they want the biggest baddest thing to hang on the wall and then to feed their family because it's a cool story so i you know for us we are trying to get that that right there at that mesh between those two that happy medium i would say for us we're leaning a little more towards the big typical clean things clean antlers clean um symmetrical tines and things like that i would say maybe at a two to one if not a three to one ratio and somebody comes to me and they asks for they ask for a package of you know 20 200 inch deer well you're going to get some under 20, 200 inches and then i'm probably going to give you two really big gnarly deer because i need to balance it out and you as a hunting operation can find that client and and it usually works out we have a hunting program here it's mostly um just family and friends and and coming in and we're going to start growing that now that we've had a few seasons of of going in the direction of these high pedigreed animals and our buck numbers are growing you know so where we can really sell a whole package um but at the end of the day i i want to move these animals off the farm i want them to be marketable and profitable for other people i i like the uh i like the thought process when you when you come at this from a a uh you know a stocking stocking first premise um I think that's lost upon a lot of people. Um, mm -hmm. or at least it it appears that way to me, just from a from a, an outsider's uh, perspective, right? Like we we, and it's not to detract from, like we, we just spent twenty minutes talking about the most in depth um, hormonal manipulation mm -hmm. of animals to create um, products, you know, reproductive products um, to make better deer, right? And and it's frankly, it's the most expensive way to raise animals. A thousand percent. Yeah. And then you, you, you turn around and you, you say every, all these animals are, are based on the the stalker market, which I think is just, it's, I, I, I want people to understand that that that's the, in my opinion, the proper way to, to approach it. Right. Um, the hunting, the hunting business is what drives what we do. Um, and if we lose sight of that, we're a bunch of emu breeders and, and for any emu breeder, don't get mad at me that I just called you out. I'm, I'm so, I'm sorry about that. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to get some hate mail from somebody like, I don't have emus, but I have ostriches and you shouldn't talk about them. Like um, so um, we've just created the uh, North South magical animal. I'm, I'm just curious. What is the, if you had to put an average on, on does size-wise, what's the average Southern deer weigh as far as your does go? 130 pounds? Is that? Pretty yeah. You know, open coming through the barn for their cedar, they're probably right there between 115 and 140 pounds. Um, I have, I have my list of girls, you know, you get to a point, you look, my boss is always kind of like, 
how do you know who that is from 50 yards away with no binoculars? Like, I see them every day. They're my children. I see these deer more than I see my child some days, you know, so um, they're also my kids. And, and when they come through the barn, they read their tag number to me, you know, my guys that are working the shoot, like, you got to let that squeeze out for her. She's probably about 160 these days, whereas it's tight down for the most part, most of my deer. I mean, I have a recip that just spawned three, maybe five days ago. Her name's Button because she's literally this big. She's a two-year-old doe and she popped out two great embryo fawns. Um, but if I ran her through the barn right now, she probably wouldn't even weigh a hundred pounds. Hmm. She's just small. Yeah. And part of it had to do with um, being a late born. She was bottle raised. She was ill that first winter after she was weaned. But a lot of it also has to do with the fact that most of my recips are Texas genetics with no really true bottom side anchor. Um, and she's just small, but she does the job just as good as these big, huge, true Northern does that I have. I mean, I have maybe five or six and they're older, you know, they put on the, that weight and that frame when they get to be that mid middle age. But most of my deer, if they're 130, they're on the big side for, for does. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, when you, um, when you put some, when you put some Northern embryos into those does, um, how, how do they, cause I, I mean, obviously, uh, maturation pre-birth has some genetic component to how those fawns oh. grow. However, there's environmental conditions, AKA the dough that they're hosted in that play a part. Yes. Um, can that little hundred so, girl spit out two eight pound fawns? No. So this, this is the crazy thing about embryology and just doing an embryo program in general. I was taught this in college and I will never forget this analogy, but you can put a Clydesdale embryo in a thoroughbred and it's only going to grow to its environment. And in the reverse, that'll probably be genetically a bigger and thoroughbred embryo in a Clydesdale, you know, mama, but it's not going to outgrow its genetic, like, predisposition to a size so I don't really worry about putting northern genetic embryos in southern genetic recents what I am concerned with from that aspect is a nutritional aspect on not overfeeding a high fat high protein diet in that third trimester um, because that's when they're putting on the majority of their weight and then we will have some dystocia, some some uh, struggle birthing those those larger fawns, those big boxy headed northern fawns. But knock on wood, so far you might jinx me by asking me this question. I haven't had to pull a fawn. I haven't had to knock down a mama and help her have her baby. So really, you know, like I said, from that standpoint, for me and how I manage my farm, it's more of a nutritional concern. Uh, then it would be a genetic concern. All right. Well, you set that next segment up very nicely. So let's <laughs> let's get off of let's get off of the reproductive and jump right into nutrition. Um, so you mentioned dystocia, and and the, just for those that are are not really understanding what that is, it's it's the buildup of fat basically around those those animals. Those the moms are too fat. 
They just can't, they can't fawn. The birthing canal is all jacked up with fat around them. They just, they, they deplete themselves because they're too fat while they're fawning. And it's, it's a, it's a, and the fawns are really big. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's overgrowing. Yeah. Those fawns. And it's a, it's a, just a, a birthing struggle. Yes. So when you look at your nutrition program, what does that mean to you? Like, what are you, what are you focusing on? What are you finding? What are some of your, your current thoughts around feed and nutrition now? You know, after having managed several farms and been in this industry, you know, right at 10 years and seeing different nutrition programs and with different goals and different, um, monetary investment, you know, feed can be expensive. That's, that's our highest bill. Forget electricity and water. It's the feed for these animals. Um, that is the highest bill that I'm like, all right, I better sell some animals to pay for this feed. Uh, but at the end of the day, they, a, a, a pregnant doe from day one of pregnancy to day 160, um, th their nutritional requirement is really low. It's really low. They're developing the brain and the internal organs and they're doing all this stuff that baby's not, it's growing, but it's, it's specialized, um, development. And then you put them in that last trimester and that's when they're laying on their fat and their hair and they're beefing up and they're looking like a baby. And to me, it, but it doesn't take much. Their body's meant to do that. And I don't want my deer looking like show heifers. They're not show heifers. You go out in the pasture and you have a mama raising two big fawns. And by the end of the summer, she's still nursing her fawns in September and October. And then she's breeding back in November here in Texas. She looks like a deer. <laughs> so why do our what pen? Is, what is that? What is a deer? Because we're joking about it, but tell somebody yeah, what live and and thin and and you know sporty, like muscly and just, but not jiggly. Not, I mean, not jiggly. That's a good, that's a what? good way to put it. I like that. I you know like my my degree is in animal science. I was I was taught livestock, cattle, and then I came to the deer industry. And some of these deer have a bigger brisket than an Angus cow, like it blows my mind sometimes. They are just jogging Baywatch style and their everything is just crazy, crazy. So for me, my does, they, they're on a low fat ration. I keep them on a 4% most of the year. And then the other thing that I do, and it's hard, the management, my management style, that's, it, it's my career, it's my job. I'm here every day. I don't have anything else to do besides manage the deer. And some days that's too much, but other days I have the time to say, okay, let's at, when we wean her fawn, she's going to go in this pen and I'm going to give her an 8% fat for about a month and put on all that weight that she lost milking probably her baby and every other baby in the pen that didn't belong to her. And then I've got some mamas who, well, she let, you know, the nursemaid mama, uh, nurse her fawns and she ate fawn feed all summer. So she's going back to a 4% because she needs to lose some weight before she AIs. It's a, it's the same in humans and being raised by a mom who's an OBGYN, you know, like 
you get taught if you're not in a body condition like suitable to have a baby you're too fat you're not going to cycle you're too thin the first thing that gets cut is your cycle your body knows it can't handle a baby so it's the same in animals um so the the four percent year round um Roughly. One, let's 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 talk about the environmental conditions where you are that facilitate <laughs> certain feed compared to let's say my environmental conditions and and the difference between the two in a northern climate versus southern climate. So yeah, why 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 the four percent fat? Because like that's low for me, right? It is low. It's I, I low. have to be above that. It's because it's can be minus 15 here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? So, but so, it's not, it's not like that where you are. No, it's not. And, and, you know, I'll, I'll feed a 4% through the winter. They're going to get the hay that I feed is really hot. It's going to be high. And the, the hay that they're eating in the summer is going to keep them warm too. You know, um, I mean, in the winter, the hay that they're eating is going to keep them warm in the winter. They'll get a tree occasionally in the winter, but in the summer, I'll increase that fat ratio a little bit because they are nursing. But for the most part, the coldest it's going to get here, maybe 15, 30 degrees for 10 days out of the winter overall. And then the rest of the winter is like 45 to 50 degrees, if not warmer. Um, and on their cold days, they get more hay and I probably will give them some treat. Um, but they, they don't need it. They just they layer on that fat so quickly. Um, we've got their pedigrees stacked with Northern genetics in the way that they can, that they will lay on that fat. Um, and then they get to the summer and they're laying, they're in a one acre pen, but they don't want to even walk half an acre to the feed trough or worse, the water trough, because they're too hot. They're too hot and they're too fat. <laughs> And the feed is making their gut hot too. You know, that's some heavy, that's some heavy organic chemistry to get into right now and talk about what, what they're doing in their room and fermenting their feed. But um, at the end of the day, a hot animal is not going to want to eat and they're not, they're not going to milk if they don't eat and they're not going to grow their antlers if they don't eat. So we've got to find that balance. Yeah, that's interesting. You no, know, just generally speaking, um, we have a, fairly high energy of feed year round like okay it was 90 it was 90 degrees at my place on monday right like that's hot for this time of year yeah we we won't see we won't see more than uh maybe 10 or 15 days over 90 where i am yeah most of the time yeah. it's like 80 82 it's really nice here in the summer it's yeah everybody's mad i know <laughs> um it's just really nice here so I don't have to worry about my animals heating up. I can, I can pump not unlimited amounts of energy until yeah. it's, it's pretty high test right now. We can debate whether that is good for the long-term uh, longevity of the animal. That's a separate, separate, yeah. topic. but like I can get good performance out of the animals that I have here. Generally speaking, most of the time we have good pasture. So there's a, a mix of some fibrous uh, yeah. product there. Like I don't, I don't have a feed lot. Um, I'm not on dirt where they're just stuffing themselves full of corn and beans and, yeah. and girls. Um, 
And neither are we. I mean, my pens are half wooded with tall pine trees. I mean, you can see through them. It's not brush. You know, in Texas, you think brushy. If you got trees, it's probably brushy, dense. That's south. That's west Texas. We're in east Texas. I got pine trees. And then the other half of the pen is open, full sun, nice grass for the most part. Unless last year, you know, we had a really bad drought season. And, and I did end up with some pens a little highly populated go dirt. But for the most part, it's the humidity with the heat that is getting these animals. I mean, I'll I'll step out of my car at seven in the morning and just like immediately be sweating or worse, drive the pens all day long, feeling like I'm breathing through water because it's so humid. <laughs> and they, and yeah, I don't, do you even know what humidity is in Pennsylvania? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it gets, it, <laughs> it gets, it, it's just not as hot right? Yeah. Like it won't, it won't be a hundred uh, degrees and 85% humidity. It just won't. Yeah. That's, that's like that the normal, the month of July. That's what I'll be doing. So. Nope. No, we don't. <laughs> there there's days where it's, it's hot and muggy, but you know, I'm starting a fund for the pool at the deer pen. So feel free. I like know? it. You know, uh, so this is way off topic, but I was, uh, <laughs> I was watching them, uh, I was speaking of pools. I was watching, they were training a uh, bucking bull and they have these, these pools. You ever see the bucking bulls go into a pool? No. Oh yeah. So, you know, you got like a million dollar uh, bucking bull that rides for PBR and they, they have these like rotundas and they put these, these bucking bulls to train them, like to get their cardiovascular and their muscles up yeah, into yeah. a pool and they swim around in a circle a couple of times. Oh my God. It's, it's not, so I can appreciate, um, the like investment, the, the, the pool idea. I think that's, yeah. <laughs> maybe you could train some of those, uh, those over-conditioned does. To well, you know, I, I have some girls that if I let them go get in the pool, they get their butts out of the water trough that they climb in every, every day, um, and go get in the pool with me. So we, we could probably work it out. It'll be on the next pitch to the boss for sure. Gotcha. He's going to go for it. <laughs> Um, so, so obviously, uh, nutrition is an important part of kind of this overall animal health, um, topic, you know, outside of kind of working, working through, cause like I look at, I look at nutrition as something that just with some thought and review is pretty easy to implement, right? Like yeah. I personally don't think it's rocket scientists. And I, I said this before I, maybe I'm a little jaded. Cause like I got, I got good feed and I don't, I don't make a bunch of changes. It's pretty simple. Right. Um, let's talk about some of the preventative measures, um, and, and set the nutrition off to the side. You know, what are some of the things just man, maybe some management strategies that you implement, um, or some things that you, you, you work on there on a daily basis that are kind of that nitty gritty. And maybe we can we can tease something out for the, the folks listening. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we talked a little bit about this earlier. I think the the three or four biggest preventative measures that I do, um, and this is probably more Texas specific, but we, we treat spray for pests. We spray pesticide to maintain the bug level to prevent, hopefully, um, crazy outbreaks of EHD and blue tongue virus. So, um, that is a huge issue in the state of Texas that people struggle with almost year round now because of the heat and, but especially in the summer that I 
take great lengths to prevent by spraying these pesticides. The other thing, um, preventative wise, we have a stout vaccine program um, that and a deworming program. Those are kind of going hand in hand because we're maintaining these animals on the same section of land year after year after year. Those are vital. And then kind of in the same hand as that comment, keeping my pet, my animal per acre number low. Um, probably not as low as you would suggest to me that you have suggested to me in the past. Yeah. Uh, it's hard, not not nearly as feasible in, in Texas, despite the amount of land that people own. Um, but that's the biggest thing is just not overworking the land. Um, what, is, what is that? Has, for me, like eight to kind of depends on the age of the animal, depends on the year. I mean, the year depends on the age of the animal, depends on the time of the year. But um, in my doe pens, I keep it at 10 to 12 head per acre. Um, now I've got like a 1.2 acre pen that only has nine deer in it. You know, it, it shifts. I have to take into account as you've probably done in the past too. I have girls that are really mean and I have girls that always get bullied. So, I mean, I have a pen that has an acre pen that has 14 deer in it because it has a bunch of sissy girls that get bullied and vice versa, you know, so, but the ultimate goal would be about 10 per acre, 10 to 12. I'll do 12 if they're young. Gotcha. I, um, <laughs> I think once you told me six per head and I was like, you're nuts. That's can't the top. That. That's the top of my range. Yeah. Can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm at, I'm at, uh, I'm at four this year. Yeah. So no, just like rolling hills. It must be the dream for deer to live on your farm. Well, I don't know. It's pretty dry out right now. I could go <laughs> for some rain, but they uh they um it's a lot less work for me. How about that? Like yeah. I'm, I'm I'm not I'm not paranoid every time I go out in my pen that I'm gonna find some, you know, of course I'm some sickness or something, but like yeah, fawn's too good. So that's well, not. you know, and I, I mean, this is a perfect example. I like last year I had an outbreak of what tested after, you know, probably 10 days of fawn, like death loss in my fawn herd, specifically in two pens, um, started taking them for necropsies and doing a bunch of, a bunch of um, testing on the back end to see what I was dealing with that a lot of people don't take advantage of. That is huge for me. Um bacterial pneumonia and okay we're going to run this diet of pneumonia we're going to test culture that bacterial pneumonia run it do a susceptibility um panel see what drugs treat it and then people can argue this management style um probably but blanket treat everybody else and get them out of the pen that they were that was obviously holding this bacteria that was getting in these fawns faces i mean dusty dirt blowing every day low grass because of a drought it it's in the soil these fawns are low to the ground they're eating that dirt more than an adult animal will eat the dirt and it, it's just and then they're nursing on their mamas and they're sharing mamas and it was just crazy i mean i had 30 something fawns i think between the two pens and i lost seven of them to this bacterial pneumonia. And I and I got those mamas out of those pens. I did all the testing. I treated, you know, it came back some gent gentamicin and Draxin was going to help me. 
and then and then I got rid of it I got done with it and then I went back and I sterilized those pens in a you know in a way that is probably I don't know how much you guys do you know spraying the ground the soil and stuff but it's a pretty popular practice in the state of Texas um but it was an overpopulation 30 fawns on two acres is a lot the mamas were low but then I was having you know multiples triplets and things and you know I've had lots of triplets every year since I've been here at this specific farm yeah that's uh that's interesting so the the one of the ways that I try to look at I try to look at pen density is that and it doesn't all it's not always like this but like prepare for the worst <laughs> right so I can probably run more deer but like what happens if we don't get rain for eight weeks right mm -hmm. what happens if you know those eight deer on an acre have three fawns a piece you don't have eight does in a pen you have 32 I think my math mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 32. No, well, yeah. 24 and 8 is 32. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can, I can do, I can do basically. <laughs> um, but like what, uh, I, I don't know what to do with that. Now you yeah. were, it's, you were super fortunate that you had some other pens. You could slide those does in and yeah. implement some, some management, um, options, but like, just, I, I think it's, I think it's important, you know, I've seen so many places that are just like full up all the time. Yeah. And I, I, I like having that option where there's a little bit of space where you can shuffle a girl out into, you know, a, a pen if you need to, or, you know, you can slide a, a group of deer into a raceway to chomp it down or so, something like that. I, I, think yeah. that's, I think that's important. And, you know, I, I guess, you know, since the, the farm's pretty new, you're, you're probably, you know, building building new pens and building, yeah. you know, facilities and stuff. How does that, like, do you, um, do you get real into like the design and how you're managing all that? Is that, that's all. Yes. I, I literally, now I'm like looking, this is my new pen design that I just did. <laughs> nice. I told my boss we needed. Um, yeah. You know, I, uh, he's never balked when I've said, We've got to take some more space. I know we're cutting into your hunting pasture and I know that that's a really nice honey hole and you've got your, your feeder out there and your stand, but it's got to be deer pens now. Um, we've been balancing really well over the last six months, moving some bread does uh, and, and getting our stalker bucks sold early so that I know that they are leaving as long as I don't have to cut their rack. But the ultimate goal, have some open pens all the time have some smaller size pens, some bigger size pens to manage. You know, if I'm going to have 15 fawns on an acre and they're only four months old, that can be hard to dart in if, if I need to dart something. So we've got three quarter acre pens for some weaned fawns. Keep, there is a risk involved, you know, close quarters, like you said, but um, having some diversity in my pen size, having like environmentally, some of them look different. Uh, treed versus just full grass versus heavy you know half and half um but that yeah that is the that's the biggest thing for me now is making sure that I have room for my animals and and it's a good way for my boss for me to say okay she's she's not an a plus girl anymore it's time to pass her off to somebody else it's time for her to go be productive for somebody else and let, let's sell her let's put her on the list of available those and this that and the other 
Um, so I think you get into the deer, at least in the state of Texas, especially when you're in this high-end market, super pedigreed stuff, and you're new, you get into the deer collecting business instead of the deer selling business. <laughs> so right now we're in that transition and, uh, and it, you can tell in my herd, my herd health, I, I moved, you know, about 40 deer out between January and May and, and it makes a difference. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. It's so funny that the deer collection business, I, uh, <laughs> I know a lot of people, including myself that have hung on to deer for too long, right? They just, um, you said it before they, they have a, a you know, a, a commodity, um, type uh value to them and value mm -hmm. so true and and you have to you have to try to use the rational part of your brain as opposed to your heart and wanting to keep everything yes. this that and the other thing um so i have one one more uh topic that i we, i can't believe we didn't touch on but um <laughs> so i had um the executive director of tda on uh, a show or two ago uh kevin davis and yes. we talked about all the different CWD regulatory stuff that's gone on. I don't want to talk about the regulations with you. I'd awesome. like to talk. I'd like to talk about um, your potential interest in um, chronic wasting disease, and you know maybe your approach to uh, the breeding aspect of things um, to kind of combat that regulatory potential regulatory capture. Is that something you guys look at? It's, it's definitely something over the last two AI seasons, so the fall of 2021 and the fall of 2022 here at Paragon, that we have taken into a pretty strict consideration. There, uh, I think that a lot of people, whether they want to tell you or not, whether they believe in it or not, uh, at the end of the day, it is a science. There's no believing in it. That's my personal opinion. Um, but you, the market is shifting and you can see it plain as day. And for us here at Paragon, we have decided that we are going to do, you know, maybe like a one foot in, one foot out sort of approach. We bred several girls traditionally, regardless of their GBV value, regardless of their codon markers, because their pedigree is so stout, it will do well regardless. But you can see a shift, especially not so much last summer. I don't think I saw you here um, for the TDA and stuff. Not so much last summer sale as on the screen in the auction book, GBV values, codon markers. It wasn't pushed super hard. But in the January and February sales here in the state of Texas, pretty much every lot had those descriptors in it. And if you didn't, people were pausing the auction and asking for that information. And, and it has become abundantly clear as somebody who manages animals and chooses animals to go in auction that we have to put our best foot forward. And right now that best foot is animals that have the potential to be resistant and are going to continue to create animals that are also going to potentially be resistant. I like that. I like your comment relating to the um, this, the science is what it is and you don't have to believe it because it's science. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I like that a bunch. I haven't, I haven't, I haven't heard a of child it. of two doctors is going to say that. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I like that. Um, it's, I think it's encouraging when you, when you look at, um, 
kind of people's uh, perceptions of how these technologies intersect with the marketplace. And, um, you know, in a, in a period, so you go from August to January, right? So September, October, November, December. So basically four months, four and a half months. And you go from um, something that is being talked about pretty much everywhere, but not advertised to it's it's officially part of the conversation yeah and, and if it's not in print like it, it's a it's a big question yeah huge I, I mean i sat in the auction room in august selling our first four does that we've ever put in a big auction and that was really exciting for us and as as the auctioneer is saying you know 15 000, 16 17 up, up, up. My phone is getting texts from all these other people in the rooms. Is she a GS? What are her markers? What's her value? What has she had fawns? Did, did she throw the S to her fawns? Mm -hmm. They want all that information. And I really appreciate the opportunity, you know, that NADAR, that the North American Deer Registry has given us to where, okay, here's your whole genetic profile of your entire herd. Now you have the opportunity to also make that public knowledge. And you can go on your genetic profile and say, yeah, every deer that I own, let everybody know what it is because then they don't have to call me and ask. They can just look it up. Yeah. And then, you know, there's going to be some deer on there that people can choose whether they want to share it or not. That's your prerogative. What, you know, whatever, but come, come this fall or this, you know, late summer, August sales, it's, I would say that every ad is going to say it. And if it doesn't, they're going to ask for it before they even start the starting bid yeah no i think that's spot on I, I think we'll see actually just it'll be much like um i know in the the top 30 maybe i don't know five years ago or so hmm. dna was mandatory like you had to submit a dna number to be in the sale yeah um, because the and and they only they only published the the known pedigree verified through DNA, right? It's yeah. it's going to be, it, I, and I'll, I can speak for Pennsylvania because I'm a big part of the uh, event up here, but like, it's going to be mandatory, right? If you're, if yeah. you're in uh, breeding stock, it's just going to be a mandatory field. And, and, and I suspect if you, if you leave it blank, like you're going to, you're going to literally pay the price. Yes. Right? A thousand percent. Yeah. A thousand percent. And and it's not, this isn't, um, it, it's interesting because like, if you look at a, and, and I, I'm just, I'm, I've looked at a couple different cattle books, but like the stuff they have in those, just to buy a straw semen, the amount of mm -hmm. knowledge. EPDs uh, are insane. Yeah. Yeah. Like they, everything's tracked. Now I get yeah. it. it. It's a, it's a different, um, it's a different species and there's a lot more money in the, in the cattle world, but like, those days are coming like, yeah, for we're, sure. We're going to see similar things. You're going to have, like, I, I suspect I'm optimistic about the whole CWD um, susceptible breeding and how we interact with the, the regulatory environment and kind of put this thing to bed for our industry. But like EHDs next, like they're going to, they're going to work on that. Right. And then yeah. you know, they're going to work on pneumonia and they're going to work on antler characteristics and body weights and soundness and reproduction they're going to work on all of that stuff it's all going to get worked on eventually um which is cool and you're going to see the list 
grow of what's listed. And I think our auction books will will change. And of course the demand's gonna change for the animals that we that we raise. I think that's my absolutely opinion. yeah. It'll I think that the biggest um you know situation that's still up in the air, at least in the state of Texas, it there's so much investment like government investment in our industry so much government oversight in our industry and that's going to be the huge deciding factor for texas is are they going to keep pushing it closer and closer or more and more and more regulations you know I, somebody told me the other day um like there's less than a hundred breeder permits in the state of texas true breeder can go from my farm to somebody else instead of a release site permit you know those are two different permits in the state of texas and and there's new ones not as much as there used to be weekly daily monthly however you want to look at it but there's more and more people getting out because they i don't know do you look at your deer every day in the state of texas there are weekend breeders or there were weekend breeders where they just saw their deer on saturday friday saturday and half a sunday in Texas now, you have to, if a deer dies, you have to get it to the lab in seven days. So on Sunday, Sunday morning, you leave your farm, that deer dies an hour later, you don't get to it till Friday. The state says too bad, so sad, you're done. You know, we're going to put you non-movement and all that. And that's tough on people. Tough, tough. So a lot of people are leaving it. Yeah. Oh, I have lots of thoughts on this. Um <laughs> So the, it, it's, I, I think, um, I, I, and again, I'm, I'm for sure an outsider. I've been called the Yankee so many times from folks. <laughs> um, so I'll, I'll, I'll share this with a grain of salt, but like, I think, I think number one, that we as, um, you know, private deer managers, deer farmers, deer ranchers have one of the most compelling stories to tell about what we do how we do it, why we do it. And we generally, I'm, again, I'm generalizing, we've done a poor job doing that. But I think I think around this particular topic of chronic wasting disease, our story is really, really good. The fact that we have one of the most brilliant people to look at the chronic wasting disease issue from a genetic standpoint, develop a technology, um, that is now commercially available for us to use that is, is so easy to implement. Um, and, and we, if we just em embrace the idea that like, we can fix this problem through some existing regulatory structure, sound diagnostics, which are coming along, you guys live test way more deer than anybody. State of Texas has live tested more white-tailed deer than every other state combined times 10. Easy. Oh, yeah. That's for sure a fact. Right? Yeah. So we have these this existing infrastructure. We have uh, diagnostics that continue to get better and better and better. Now we have a genetic component. When you put all those things together, you have what could be the birth of a program that changes how we look at chronic wasting disease. And it, it, it says, this isn't a wildlife disease. It's not a livestock disease. It's just a disease. 
but we as livestock managers, because frankly, I get that there's this hunting component to it, but like, we're talking about animals that we, we, we raise in a, in a farmed environment. Yeah. We, we can make such great effects to the, the genetics on these animals that like, this becomes a non-issue. Yeah. They've done it. They've done it in other animals. They've done it in, in cattle, essentially not quite a hundred percent. They've done it in sheep. Yep. What makes it different and why, why are the regulations not the same as they are for scrapey and mad cow in animal agriculture? You know, I don't really like to call whitetail livestock, but they are for sure animal agriculture. Yep. What makes, why is there any difference? Yeah. It's more so, like wild, wild livestock or alternative livestock. You could yeah, use Yeah. 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 Cause yeah. People always ask me like, are the deer so, you know, are they tame? I'm like, well, they're so wild animals. They haven't been domesticated. It takes thousands of years, but yes, they're farmed. Yes. They are not like a native deer. Yeah. Well, so. some, I don't really like the word tame, although we've seen, um, we've seen temperaments that are tame. Yeah. But some are calm. Yeah. Some are calm. Some deer, heck, I got some deer that run around in my local locale that like, they're pretty calm. Oh, a thousand percent. Yeah. yeah. You feed them enough. They're gonna, they're that's gonna be chill around you. Cause that's the only way they can, they're yeah. going to eat what they like. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't have any tame deer, just calm deer. Yeah. I, yeah, I've changed my management a bunch over the years and I, I actually don't like tame, tame deer. Uh, they're, they're not great for my operation at all. Um, yeah, I I feel the same way. I'm they they cause more problems, honestly. Yeah, I know some people. I, I guess uh, I wonder if if there's a and I'm going to jump back to the embryo program a second. Um, I, wonder, <laughs> I wonder if there's um, you know if we could do like cortisol tests, like blood tests when we run them in, just yeah. to see. Um, how they're handling. I mean, if you, you mentioned darting them, but like, I wonder if you put them in a shoot, if that, like you could, you could do these blood tests and, and I don't know, cortisol is the easy one to pick out for me anyway. Yeah. Like check. Well, their I've, I've noticed in my, I've noticed in my donors, um, if they are psycho 365 days a year, they don't care that they're being flushed. They're going to be crazy either way. <laughs> and they generally do better. They they'll they'll hit that that low average five six like it's nothing. And then what I have what I would consider is maybe not so much anymore. But my tamest deer, she lived in my house. She was born so early than everybody else that I was like, okay, you're my bottle baby, and I'll take you. She did not flush well because it's so out of the ordinary for her to be pushed into this this alternative scenario over and over and over again for for essentially two weeks straight that sh- she flushed but not as well as the other girl in her pen who's crazy so you know when i when i talked about picking and choosing the girls in my program i want things that are okay with being managed every day you know my this doe that I'm telling you about her, her name is Aggie because I'm a predictable graduate of Texas a <laughs> Um, but she just cannot handle scenarios that are different from her day to day. 
and these other girls that that do flush well they don't really care yeah that's interesting i wonder if there's just this uh natural maybe normal sustained stress level stress level yeah absolutely. And they're, just, they're used to the adversity in life yes they're like yeah normal deer if you will mm -hmm. um yeah that's that's really interesting or maybe it's maybe it's when the the stress is induced um it's it's a it's a bump and then it's straight back down to baseline yeah lines closer right yeah and and yeah instead of prolonged like plateaued at a high level and then dropping and then it, indicating it again a week later when you have to be you know sedated a second time so that's part of the reason why people are darting their embryo their super ovulation um hormones is it has been shown at several farms over the last years it's become you know mostly the normal practice that you are managing the stress level better rather than putting them through the shoot five days in a row for eight shots uh people that have done through the shoot in whitetail have struggled and so people were you know were coming trying to find alternative methods of uh administering the hormone and so now now we dart yeah that's, yes. that's interesting i know uh so we use the one shot and um you know, by the fourth time, which was the last time I'm tricking my does to get them into the raceway. And, you mm -hmm. know, I, I have, I have really three or four different ways that I can switch up the gates where they're like, Oh, this is new. You know, sometimes you open a new gate and they're like, Ooh, yeah. Like, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, like you try to use the same gate twice and maybe they just don't go for it. Um, and, and by that last time, they just don't want to go in the barn. But like, I, you know, like I was using, I was using the shoot, um, because I didn't have to handle them, you know, multiple times like that. Yeah. Um, I remember the first, the first time we did it though, I did, I did use, um, I did use darts and, and I guess there's, you could probably set up, maybe, maybe you are set up, like you could probably set up some pretty slick pens for doing those those types of procedures well so they actually come in the barn okay um they still come in the barn i have holding rooms that have windows cut in yep. in my all my holding rooms have an entry door and an exit door so yep. both those doors have windows cut in and then there is a window on the wall in between those two doors too and generally when i'm doing the darting with a blow dart i'm in the main window and the, my record keeper um is standing in the other window kind of peeking through but like all the lights are off i'm using a headlamp to just give me there's three or four does usually three per room and i'm darting them quick shutting the door going to the next going to the next i mean i was doing i had 22 donors this year four were on the one shot 18 came in five days in a row for their shots i was darting 18 deer in 12 minutes like seven minutes eight minutes like they were in and out as fast as they could even in the shoe sometimes because you've got to sort them in the boxes and make sure they quit kicking before yeah. you get a deep muscle shot on them you could take longer than 10 minutes eight minutes you know however and it was always it, it was getting faster and then usually like the second to last shot or third to last shot then they start getting smart and then suddenly like that's the one that takes me a long time and they're all looking 
swear at me right through the window so that I can't get a good shot off on them. Deer, deer are the smartest. Deer are the dumbest smart animals I have ever seen. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's no, insane no. the smart things that they do, and then the next day they just do the dumbest things. Yeah, we get to we get to learn from them. We're we're super. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna because again, I like I said to you before, we could we could we could chat forever. Things, yeah. <laughs> um, I appreciate you coming on the show. Um, maybe we'll uh we'll catch up. We'll do another show towards the end of summer. We'll we'll check in on uh, your fawn crop and see how Paragon. Yeah. Works. Yeah, for Go sure. Ahead. Yeah. I'm at I don't I don't know with the with the quadruplets this morning I think I'm at 172 fawns already. I I'm, to... I'm about to have to ask Parks and Wildlife for more unique numbers. That's how. <laughs> so my crop is doing really really well. So hopefully when I get to weaning and and yeah we'll be able to chat again. That's awesome. Um, TDA, you're gonna make it over to TDA. Yes, sir. I will. I will be there. We're, we're already starting to talk about what we're going to put in the sale. I already sent my first hundred fawns to DNA. So, yep. I just got my first, uh, 10 off, which is all of my fawns. So, <laughs> uh, I got my, I got my, uh, my stuff sent out maybe yesterday, yesterday, or we did the paperwork yesterday. Yeah. We got to send it, but, um, yeah. yeah, that's cool. Well, I look forward to seeing you there and, uh, we'll chat again soon. Thank you so much for, for coming on. And yeah, absolutely. That, Thanks for having me. Yep. Yeah, with that, we'll wrap up. Stay tuned for another episode of North American Deer Talk.